What are the rights given to women in Iran? How is the government set up? What happened during the Iran-Iraq war? Why is the Iran nuclear deal so controversial? How do Iranians express discontent with the government? And what happens when they do? What is life like in Iran today? And what are some of the current issues Iranians are facing? We will learn the answers to these questions and more in today's episode, part three of Iran 101, or the last 100-ish years in Iran. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Part three, the last installment. Let's go. Hopefully you've listened to part one and part two by now. Everything in those episodes is going to build up into today's episode. So please listen to those. I also want to say before we begin that this episode does talk briefly about rape. So just a heads up. At the end of part two, we ended on the Iranian hostage crisis. We have Ayatollah Khomeini as the supreme leader. He's setting up a new form of government, an Islamic Republic. And let's talk about this for a minute. I've got a vocab word for you here, theocracy. A theocracy is a system of government where a religious leader rules the nation in the name of God. So it's a complete blend of religion and government. It's the exact opposite of separation of church and state. That is what the Islamic Republic in Iran is. It's a theocracy. And in this case, Sharia law is the law of the land. We talked about that in part two. So in Iran, we have a supreme religious leader called the Ayatollah. And the type of government that is in Iran is very unique. As Frontline puts it, quote, On the surface, the U.S. and Iranian governments have much in common. A president who is popularly elected— He's elected for four-year terms and can't serve more than two consecutive terms. A boisterous legislature, that's the majlis, and a powerful judiciary. The obvious obvious difference lies in the fact that Iran is an Islamic theocracy and that one man, the supreme leader, exerts ideological and political control over a system dominated by clerics who shadow every major function of the state. So while the Grand Ayatollah rules over everything and stays in indefinitely until his death, there are elected leaders in Iran. And I think that's important to know. Um, The parliament, the Majlis, has 290 members, and they are elected for four-year terms. They are the legislative branch, like the United States Congress. And I'll talk more about elections and the government in a minute, but just keep that word, theocracy, in mind. It does come up. And now it's 1980. We have these big changes happening in Iran. People who are questioning the new government or are not following the rules, minority groups, communists, people who disagree in any way, women who are picked up by the modesty police or people out past curfew. These people are being taken to prison or executed or some of them are leaving the country as quickly as they can before the airports close. 
It's mayhem. Evin Prison is the most notorious of the prisons in Iran. Some of the stories of Evin Prison in particular are so terrible. I just really can't talk about them. I get emotional. But I do want to talk about one thing, as painful as it is, because it has come up in every single one of the books I've read about Iran, and that is the systemic raping of girls. I think this is so important to know about. There are lots of reports of Iranians and guards in the prisons who talk about how they would rape virgins before they were executed. So these were women who were taken in for morality issues or political prisoners, uh, fighting against the regime in any way. They were brought into the prison, and before they were executed, they would be raped. And the reason why is because they believed that virgins were sent straight to heaven. And so because these women and girls had broken some rule, however arbitrary or not, that they didn't deserve heaven, so they would rape them. This is just one tiny piece of the issues surrounding political prisoners and women's rights and human act um, human rights activists in Iran. But I want you specifically to know that one because it really does come up often. Let's go back to the history for a second. In the middle of the Iranian hostage crisis, when all of these new rules were coming out, Iraq decides to bomb Iran in September of 1980, which starts the Iran-Iraq War. This lasted from 1980 until 1988. So eight years. We have a massive revolution, and then we have a war. Saddam Hussein was the ruler of Iraq at the time, and he was not a fan of Khomeini. There's no sure answer for why Iraq bombed Iran. Everything is pretty speculative, but there are a lot of different reasons, and so I'm going to tell you some of them. One of them is that Saddam Hussein was concerned that Iranian Shias living in Iraq would stir up trouble for his regime after the Iranian Revolution. Iraq at the time was secular, and it was not it was not a theocracy, and it had majority Sunni Muslims. And so Shia uprisings were not what he wanted. That could have been one reason. Another idea has to do with the borders. There have always been land disputes between Iraq and Iran, longstanding, and Iraq claimed that Iran had violated a provision along the borders another one. Another idea is that there were issues with Saddam Hussein's military. He was having problems with them, and he was worried that there might be a coup to remove him from office, and so starting a war would keep his military busy. And some of it was just revenge against Iran. Iran and Iraq have not been friends. Um, they have a very tenuous history. And Iran was a fragile state at the time. This was a good time for a war. Whatever the motives, an eight-year war ensued, which led to even more Iranians fleeing the country. In fact, most of the Iranians that I know personally or I have read about left Iran during the revolution 1979-1980 or during the Iran-Iraq war. And the war becomes the focus of Iranian life for the next eight years. Khomeini was very good at using this tragedy to unite the people and to use it as a vehicle for public relations. For example, the first men to die in the Iran-Iraq war were considered martyrs and they were publicly lauded. And so he just seems to me like an expert at using emergencies to his advantage. And those who fought in the war died for a religious cause. They were seen as martyrs. They were put on billboards. And Iranians began to shelter in place. Some of the stories of the bombings from Iraq are, are pretty terrible, including one woman I read about who had a baby while bombs were going off all around her and the power went out. And toward the middle of the war, again, an eight-year war, Khomeini starts talking about how 
This war is to get rid of Saddam Hussein, conquer Iraq, unify all Muslims against Israel in a bigger, holier war. And Iraq, I mean, so you can see how he's changing his approach as the war goes on. Iraq really hit Iran hard with attacks on its oil, which significantly weakened Iran. And the war ended in a stalemate that was brokered by the UN, but both sides endured a ton of damage. The leftovers from this war are still in Iran. As one author wrote, quote, in most Iranian cities, there is at least one artificial limb shop for the country has the second highest number of landmines in the world studded into its soil. An estimated 16 million mines are left over from the war with Iraq, waiting to explode beneath an unsuspecting farmer or child. The government has not done nearly enough to address the landmine problem and to cover up this neglect. It also censors news coverage of landmine deaths and mutilations. As a result, most Iranians who live outside the worst afflicted regions have little idea that their country harbors such dangers. End of quote. To this day, there are activists in Iran working to remove the landmines. In 1989, so at the very end of the Iran-Iraq War, Khomeini dies. Ali Khamenei, I know, this is so confusing. Names are very similar, but Khomeini was the first one. Khamenei is the second one. He officially succeeds Khomeini. He is the new supreme leader in 1989. He is still the supreme leader of Iran, and he is 83 years old as I record this. Now let's talk about daily life in the 1980s and 1990s for Iranians. Without a doubt, the most contention in the social debate in Iran during this time, and maybe even now, is over the status of women. Women were segregated in many schools. They were required to wear Islamic standard dresses. Wearing makeup was illegal. Women were often stopped in the streets if they had a loose strand of hair out of their hijab, or if they had polished nails or lipstick or blush. Trying to make yourself more attractive as a woman could lead to lashings. Most women wore chadors. They still do today. Again, I talked about that in part two, but that's the complete covering except for the face of the woman. And they wore these for fear of the morality police. Women were stoned for adultery, not the men. I personally think being stoned to death has got to be one of the worst ways to die. And I am astonished that some of the dates of stonings I read about are post-1986. There's even some rumors that it can still happen today. Birth control was limited at first in the 1980s, 1990s, but then it actually was pushed very heavily. There were new rules about polygamy. We'll talk about marriage laws in a minute. Women were not allowed to hold public office, but they did have the right to vote. Many women went abroad for school and they were allowed to get degrees. And this is still true today. So women's rights in Iran are better than many Middle Eastern countries, such as Saudi Arabia. But because most women in Iran had known some level of freedom prior to the regime in the Shah eras, this is to have your to have your rights revoked is very different than having your rights never there in the first place. And so this was a very big deal for the world to watch this happen to Iran. And one part about Iranian law that I find very interesting is that it allows for two types of marriage, conventional marriage and temporary marriage. And one of the best books I read about this was called Until We Are Free. It was written by uh, Shireen Ebadi, who was a judge under the Shah, and then was stripped of that title under the new Islamic Re Republic. And since she was still a lawyer, she began working pro bono or for free on human and women's rights cases. She's still threatened constantly for her work, and she now lives in exile, and they're constantly trying to kill her. But um, 
So she's a good example of there are Iranians who speak up against this, right? But she shares in her book a little bit about marriage and women's rights. And I thought her explanation of temporary marriage was very interesting. She says, quote, under Sige, which is temporary marriage, the duration of the marriage is determined in advance. It could be as short as an hour or as long as a decade. If a child is born under a Sige marriage, he or she is a rightful child with all legal entitlements from both parents. When the Sige expires, the married couple should separate unless the arrangement is mutually extended. The practice has existed in Iran for centuries and is primarily intended to determine and regulate paternity should a woman become pregnant. But it is shunned by younger and less traditional Iranians who see it as an archaic religious loophole that effectively legalizes prostitution. Wow, I just find that so interesting. I've never heard of that personally in my studies. So basically, you get permission from a cleric to have a temporary marriage for an hour or a few hours or a couple of years or a couple of months, and then that marriage can be disbanded. Very interesting. To this day, public sex segregation is common in Iran. Some cities have women-only parks, men-only parks. In Tehran in the 1980s and 90s, hotels and restaurants were not permitted to allow men and women to mix together. So many people would have their wedding receptions at home or they could rent a private wedding facility that would allow mixing. Separated elevators for women and men exist in some parts of Tehran. Basically, the metropolitan ideas of the 1970s were gone. And this was a shock to many, uh, especially in the urban centers, to many Iranians. From what I could gather, these rules ebbed and flowed based on whoever is president at the time. So some presidents have been a little bit looser and some have been more strict. And the Iranian population has to adapt. As for religious or cultural minorities, Iran is not known for its tolerance. There's one group in particular that the regime hates, the Baha'is. And as Abadi writes, quote, Iran makes life difficult for the religious minorities. It does accept Christians, Jews, and Sunni Muslims. But the Baha'is, considered heretics by the Islamic Republic, are singled out for full-scale persecution. The Baha'i faith emerged in Iran about 200 years ago, and today Baha'is number around 5 million globally, with 350,000 or a sizable community living in Iran in the country's largest single religious minority. The Islamic Republic not only rejects the Baha'i faith, but prevents Baha'is from holding government jobs, denies them licenses for running businesses like restaurants and hair salons, and forbids their young people to study at universities. Since 1979, the state has executed more than 200 Baha'is simply for their religious beliefs. When the community leaders are arrested, no lawyer dares take on their case. In the legal realm, the Baha'is are the no-man's land of the Islamic Republic. No one, even lawyers who represent feminists and democracy activists, will take on a Baha'i case because the state's hatred and extreme sensitivity are so entrenched that the consequences lawyers fear will be too dangerous. End of quote. So you can see how being a minority group in Iran, especially a religious minority, can be very dangerous for people in terms of just their daily lives. Let's move away from cultural day-to-day practices for just a little bit and talk about what happened politically during this time and how Iran has changed from the 1990s until now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The politics of Iran after the revolution are very interesting to me. Yes, it is a theocracy with Sharia law being the governing text. However, like we've talked about, there are elections. And in the 1990s into roughly 2008... Ebadi, this woman judge I've been quoting, she writes, quote, Iran was unique in the region for having competitive elections. Throughout most of the Middle East, dictators either didn't hold elections at all or held farcical events ignored by their people in which they won 99.9% of the vote. In Iran, there is enough political rivalry and enough of a constitutional mandate for an electoral process that elections draw a reasonable turnout, and rarely since the 1979 revolution has the result been wholly or even partially known beforehand. Iran's elections have largely been clean, if only because the process of vetting candidates is itself dirty. High clerical authorities vet candidates and permit only those figures they consider acceptable to make it onto the ballot. We talked about that before, right? As a result, there is a real rivalry between some figures, but it is not a truly democratic process by any stretch. End of quote. The mullahs, remember, they are the leaders of the mosques underneath the ayatollahs. They, many of them, after 1979, became quite rich, some of them going from riding donkeys pre-1979 to driving Mercedes. Very interesting. In the 1990s, the U.S. began imposing oil and trade sanctions on Iran because of its quest for nuclear arms, and it was hostile toward the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. We'll talk about that next in the show. Elected in 1997, a man named Katami, the president, governed relatively progressively. He focused more on women's rights and even had one of his vice presidents, there are multiple, she was a female. And he relaxed government control on print media, even spoke out on behalf of previously oppressed minorities like the Kurds. He was kind of willing to play ball with the West and especially the United States. So things loosened up a little bit in the late 1990s into the 2000s. Another example is that Iran was more sympathetic to the U.S. after 9-11, 
more than many other Middle Eastern countries were. There was even um, like candlelit vigils in solidarity with the U.S. after the attack in Iran. But then in 2002, President George W. Bush made a speech where he lumped Iran with Iraq and North Korea and calling them the axis of evil. And Iran, as a country, felt quite snubbed by this and became much less cooperative with the United States after this time. However, Iranians are a people of paradox, and their attitude toward the United States and the West does not always align with their government, or their feelings are more complex than what the government shows. From what I can gather, it seems that there are some Iranians who really do resent the United States and think of it as the great Satan. But the majority of Iranians, ordinary Iranians, from everything I read, tend to not feel that way. There is quite a bit of respect for Europeans and Americans and a desire to want to be friends. As one historian put it, they think that the Iranians have a special status being so unique among their Middle Eastern neighbors. And so that respect and friendship and camaraderie is something that many ordinary Iranians want from the West. So from 1997 to 2004, Iran had a little bit of a moderate wind. There were many protests during this time. Some progress was being made, however slow. While the more liberal Iranians had control from 1997, it ended in 2004 when the conservatives regained control of the Majlis. The new president of Iran was named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. That is a hard name to pronounce. I hope I did it right. He was elected in 2004, became the president in 2005, and uniquely, he wasn't a mullah, which is why many people voted for him. He returns Iran to a more conservative situation, more conservative laws, a step away from the previous reforms. Some people even compare him to Joseph Stalin. He made very conservative change quickly. Women began being arrested again by the morality police. Activists began being arrested more. More pro-Western thinkers did not like him. Very strong figure. So after his first four years, when he was up for re-election again in 2008, Ahmadinejad was not expected to win, but he did. And there were huge protests around this because, again, he was not supposed to have won. Almost every book I read about talked about how this election was either completely rigged or extremely suspicious. The votes were tallied so fast, and it had been so unlikely. So lots of protests and upheaval in 2009 over his election. And this is often called the Green Movement in Iran. Whether or not it was rigged, thousands of people protested the election results. This is the biggest protest movement probably in Iran in the last 15 years until the protests that we're seeing today, which we'll talk about. The Green Movement was stomped out, however, because it was mostly only in the cities and it didn't spread to the whole country at large. The poor weren't involved. It was mostly urban youth. And the violence against the Green Movement was so strong that it was unsuccessful at creating the change that the protesters wanted. Not to mention that the state television and radio, so the what was run by the state, didn't cover it at all or covered it in a very distorted and biased way. So after 2009, Iranians began turning to satellite TV networks to get their news. And as Ebadi, this judge I've been talking about, writes, quote, Iranians had always watched networks like BBC Persian or Voice of America's Persian service, but the viewership figures for both networks had jumped after 2009 angering the Iranian regime and prompting it to scramble the network's satellite signals more aggressively than in the past, end of quote. Basically, the regime was very interested in stopping Iranians from hearing the news from other sources than themselves. Censoring the media is one of the 
most powerful ways that a regime can take control. The regime was criticized heavily for doing this, but as Abadi writes, quote, the Islamic Republic learned a lesson. It learned that global public opinion could be mobilized and mounted to apply pressure to its behaviors on the world stage. It learned that it couldn't freely target global satellites hovering in the sky to enact its censorship. But of course, the Islamic Republic, even when chastened, finds new ways to renew its purpose, cutting its citizens off from the outside information. When it realized it could not hold up an iron curtain, shielding Iran from satellite signals, it installed mobile stations throughout the country's cities that did, that did the same thing, only at the ground level. Instead of targeting the satellite waves as they bore down from the sky, these stations intercepted the waves just above Iranians' houses. Iranians' concerns about the health impact of this interference over the city grew by the day. Newspapers published anxious pieces, and senior officials, including a vice president and the director of Department of the Environment, spoke publicly about the medical risks of terrestrial jamming. This soon became a key issue of public debate and concern, the fact that the state was jeopardizing Iranians' health in order to censor what they could watch on television. This, too, proved that work outside of the country in the name of human rights could still have a great impact on the government and what people inside the country were thinking and talking about, end of quote. So again, we have another example of a powerful regime restricting the media, going to extreme lengths to do it, much like many of the other countries that we've talked about. I'm going to pause here for a second and talk about the Iranian nuclear program because it does come up from time to time. And then I'll end on Iran on a more broad context from 2009 to 2022. To put the Iranian nuclear program very simply, Iran has been interested in researching nuclear technology to make nuclear weapons since the 1950s. In the early days under the Shah, the program was supported by the United States. In 1970, for example, Iran agreed to use its nuclear program only for peaceful purposes, such as energy, and agreed to be inspected regularly. However, after the 1979 revolution, Iran stopped cooperating with the West on this issue, and their nuclear ambitions became much more secretive. In 1995, the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iran for its quest for nuclear arms and its hostility toward Israel. But throughout the 2000s, Iran continued to work on its program and inspections. There's a particular agency that does nuclear inspections. And they would come and they would inspect and they would rebuke um, Iran. And the U.N. would tell Iran that it would have to halt its work. And then Iran wouldn't do that. And the U.N. Security Council imposed more sanctions on Iran. Iran was losing billions in lost oil revenues from these sanctions. And in 2015... After years and years of negotiations, a deal was made to limit Iranian nuclear activity. The deal in a nutshell was that if they didn't limit their nuclear activity, then the international economic sanctions would return. And the deal gave these nuclear inspectors most, but not all, access to Iranian sites. Again, this is what's often called the Iran nuclear deal. And this was a highly controversial issue here in the United States. I remember it very well under the Obama administration. Donald Trump removed the U.S. from that agreement in 2019 and reinstated sanctions. Now, who stands to lose from Iran's nuclear program the most? Probably Israel. Israel is an ally to the United States and most other Western nations, and Iran's nuclear program makes Israel very nervous. The Iran nuclear deal today is not super strong. The U.S. pulling out of it uh, was a big deal. And Israel sees Iran as an existential threat. Curbing Iran's nuclear ambitions is still an issue today in 2022. As for Iran itself from 2009 until now, 
Politically, most of the international news around Iran has been around the nuclear deal. Iran supports the Syrian dictator who is currently in the ongoing Syrian war. They support him economically and with some troops. Iran generally has positive relationships with both Russia and China. Iran supports Russia in the current Russia-Ukraine war. Since the leader of Iran is also a very important leader of Shia Islam, this means that countries with many Shia Muslims tend to be allies with Iran, but relationships have friction. Iraq, for example, has sometimes has good relationships with Iran and sometimes does not. Hezbollah, which is a terrorist group in Lebanon, has always been an ally of Iran. Iran provides most of its weapons and funding, which gives Iran some influence in the Mediterranean. And this is a can of worms, but Iran fights many proxy wars in the Middle East by funding particular groups with its oil money. Iran and al-Qaeda, for example, have sometimes been friends and sometimes haven't. Terrorist experts debate over this. It's hugely complicated. Religion, oil influence, anti-American sentiment, anti-Israeli sentiment, all of these things collide into a very complicated stew that's difficult to parse out. But it's really important to know that they do fund different groups in the Middle East and are very powerful and fight wars from the point of view of giving money and support. Iran has continued to go back and forth between more moderate leaders, more conservative hardliners. Iranians have revolted many times and have been suppressed. They know how to protest. In 2019, there were protests over fuel prices that led to the deaths of over 1,500 people. Activists have been put into exile. They live in safe houses, their families and friends thrown in prison or asked to denounce them publicly. The story of activism in Iran is a tragic one. I'll be sharing some stories with you in my newsletter. You can sign up for that on my website. But then let's talk about 2020. Iran had elections in 2020 that ended with the conservative hardliners taking the majority of the Majlis again. The current president of Iran is Ebrahim Raisi. He is a regime hardliner. He is known for the execution of thousands of political prisoners and Christians in Iran. So let's talk about Christianity for a second. Christianity is kept relatively quiet in Iran. There are roughly only 300,000 Christians. If you started off a Christian, such as the Armenians, that's allowed. And Christian communities and expat groups are allowed to, in theory, practice their faith. But converting from Islam to Christianity is punishable by death in Iran. It doesn't always do this, but Christian converts are arrested in Iran. And some human rights think tanks say that 53 Christian converts were arrested in 2021, so last year. However, I also read reports that their Christianity is flourishing in Iran. And so it, it's kind of hard to say. Christianity is growing in Iran more than any other Islamic state. And like I said, in the 1980s, Raisi, the current president, was known for leading the executions of many Christians. Even in 2021, there are stories that leak out about private home-based churches being raided and people being arrested. In terms of other minority groups, the LGBT community in Iran faces extreme challenges. Acting on it is illegal and it is punishable by death. Let's talk about women's rights as well. Here's a few things to know about marriage in Iran. A man can marry up to four women at one time. Women can only marry one husband. A woman needs a male guardian's consent, either from her father or paternal grandfather, to marry. There's also rules about women being able to travel with male consent only. Muslim women cannot marry non-Muslim men, while Muslim men can marry Jews, Christians, or Zoroastrians. 
The revolutionary government lowered the age of marriage for women from 18 to 13 years old in 1979. And then in 1982, they lowered the age for marriage for girls to the age of nine. Yep, you heard that right. In 2002, the Majlis raised the age of marriage back to 13 for girls and to 15 for boys, which is still what it is today. In a marriage contract, women are required to be obedient to receive funds for housing, clothes, food, and furniture. As for divorce, for a long time, a woman could only get a divorce in court with a judge's order, while a man could get divorced by just declaring it verbally. In 2002, the parliament amended the law to allow a woman to divorce her husband if he was imprisoned, mentally ill, physically abusive, or an addict. As for dress code, the women are required to cover their hair and dress modestly from the age of puberty, and there are lots of laws about women's dress codes. As I researched quality of life for people living in Iran up to now, I'll be honest, I got mixed results. With the rise of sanctions and the president making very conservative changes, the cost of living has increased and citizens have faced higher prices for goods, especially for food. And so the quality of life for many Iranians has gone down recently and many into poverty. Uh, cost of living is not especially high in Iran, but pay is not very high either. And it's been in a tough economic situation since the sanctions and many Iranians, you know, due to the news and Internet and they have many of them have educations in other places. They know that there are better opportunities and options for their country. Currently, the Iran of October 2022, when I'm recording this, the inflation rate is 50 percent. And we here in the United States complain of 8 percent. The economy is doing very poorly with almost 300% price hikes in food since the government just removed food subsidies. And many Iranians are seeing their entire retirement be drained away with this situation. There have been protests and uprisings about the economic situation in the last year. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
Now, in 2022, we are seeing more protests going on in Iran. On September 16th this year, protests erupted all over Iran following the death of Masa Amini. Amini was 22 years old. She was taken into police custody for wearing an improper hijab. I've also heard that she might have been wearing too tight of pants. It's hard to say. But the morality police did pick her up, and she died. The police claimed that she died of a heart attack, but given that she was 22 years old and the history of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, this seems highly suspicious. It very, seems very likely she was beaten to death. I'm going to quote from an article in The Guardian. It reports that, quote, preliminary CT scans of Amini's head revealed a bone fracture, hemorrhage, and brain bleeds. But those who have lived under the Iranian regime don't need forensic evidence. They know the terror women face physically and psychologically every day. It is so common that everyone has either experienced it firsthand or knows someone close who has. The Iranians risking their lives by taking to the streets are there to protest not only Amini's death, but the threatened death all women face daily. End of quote. Iranians in Iran and all over the world have taken to the streets. It's now a nationwide, worldwide protest. There are videos of girls taking off their mandatory hijabs, their headscarves, burning them, cutting their hair on the streets. I've now read quite a bit on this, and to be honest, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hearing some people talk about a revolution. I'm hearing some people just say it's protests like the 2009 Green Movement. It's really hard to say at this point. But What makes these protests a little bit different from my point of view is that there seems to be a wider group of women and men joining in on these protests. The poor, the highly religious, the men, they seem to be more invested this time. And as I record this, the protests have been going on for over a month. And what started off as a feminist movement is now calling for the downfall of the regime. Protesters have attacked police cars. They're thrown devices at police. This is a pretty big deal. And the crackdowns by the Revolutionary Guard have been intense and brutal. The Revolutionary Guard, as um, the author Reza Aslan put it, isn't the military. Imagine if the military, the FBI, the CIA, and the mafia were one organization. That's the Revolutionary Guard, and they control everything. End of quote. So to stand up against the Revolutionary Guard is a pretty big deal, and to have young girls doing this in the street, I think it deserves international attention, absolutely. The death toll as I write this is in the hundreds and will likely continue to climb. Khamenei, the Ayatollah, He is blaming the United States and Israel for fueling the protests. He has since made it clear that the regime will block the protesters, that there will be no change. And since this is an ongoing story, news articles are being printed hourly about it. It it. It's up for debate, right? But it does seem to me to be one of the biggest challenges that the Islamic Republic has faced in years. And the young people seem to have very little faith in reforming the Islamic Republic and want to take down the whole thing. Some have even made signs about it, as I said earlier. One author put it, quote, The emerging generation are better nurtured, better educated, and often less romantically nationalistic. They are, by and large, cynical about the regime's xenophobic outlook and its isolationist policies. End of quote. They also have social media. That's big. The Islamic Republic has not been successful at cutting them off from the outside world. There are many opinions about what the international community can do at this time. I'll let you read about those stories and see the different opinions and make your own. But it is a time of great turmoil in Iran. Could the regime be brought down? It's really hard to say. This is a regime that's been around since 1980. It's very deeply entrenched. So keep your eye on Iran, and I'm, I'm very anxious to see what happens.
To wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about Iranians who do not live in Iran. As I talked about before, there has been an Iranian diaspora, right? Due to security reasons, lots of Iranians have left Iran and they cannot go back or they go back infrequently. And since I live in the United States, I want to talk about Iranian Americans briefly. There are roughly 1.9 million Iranian Americans living in the United States, and about half of them live in greater Los Angeles. Beverly Hills is said to be somewhere around 20% Iranian. There are, they are some of the most well-educated of all immigrants in the United States, and the majority have college educations and are generally seen very positively in their communities as contributing, taxpaying, law-abiding immigrants. So as an immigrant population, they are one of the more wealthy populations as well. I live in the Bay Area in California, and all of the Iranians I've met have been absolutely delightful people, so I have a high opinion of them. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I feel like I just completed a marathon, but I also feel like I barely scratched the surface. Let's do a quick summary. Let's summarize part three. In the beginning, in 1980, we have a new Islamic Republic. Iran changes, especially in regard to women's rights. Lots of changes. Western nations would probably say these were not for the better. Women's and human rights activists have long been at work in Iran for what I think is good reason. In 1980, Saddam Hussein in Iraq bombs Iran and thus begins a nearly eight-year war between the two nations, ending in a stalemate. In 1989, Khomeini dies. He is replaced by Khamenei, who is still supreme religious leader in Iran. Politics in Iran have been largely a pendulum swing between more moderate clerics and more hardliners. Protests have occurred many times during the last 40 years, especially in 2009 with the alleged rigged election. The regime responds by cracking down very hard, limiting the Internet and other methods to keep the people quiet and passive. In the region, Iran fights proxy wars by giving money and supporting various groups. It has a nuclear program that is a source of international worry and controversy. And in 2022, a young woman was killed by the morality police and huge protests have erupted all over the country. And the world is watching. Will Iran make big changes? Will it not? Will we see the overthrowing of the regime? No one knows yet. Okay, as for my thoughts on Iran, you know, besides my study of Israel and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Iran is by far the most complicated place I have studied. And I feel like their ancient history is truly incredible and in many ways very admirable. The ancient history and art and poetry and philosophy and Persia is just really fascinating to me. And the overall takeaway that I have for Iran is that it is a place of great contradiction and it requires finesse and nuance to understand. And I hope that I have been able to do it justice. I feel really inadequate if I'm being honest. I read quite a few books written by Americans about Iran and others written by Iranians. And still the major theme I got was that Iranians have a deep sense of understanding of nuance and complexity which is something I really admire. And one activist and Nobel Peace Prize winner from Iran said something I found very interesting. She said, quote, Back when Iranians began emigrating by the thousands, both those who left and those who stayed behind remained fiercely proud of Iran the nation. We have been ruled by autocrats, kings, and now clerics. Our history reached back thousands of years, all the way to Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, who inscribed civilization's first human rights charter on a clay cylinder. I viewed myself as an inheritor of this history, of the great tradition of epic Persian poetry that I had read to my girls every night before bedtime. 
Like most Iranians, I was bitterly disappointed in Iran's present precisely because of the love and admiration I had for its past. End of quote. I thought that was really beautifully said. Another quote by someone is that Iran is the country of unbelievable paradoxes. And I have found that to be true. I would read stories about schoolgirls who would watch Oprah and loved Oprah, but then like the next week they would be suicide bombers. You know, that's a paradox. It's hard to reconcile that and understand that. I feel like I could study it the rest of my life and still barely scratch the surface. But I'm going to leave on that note. I hope that this was at least a little bit helpful to you in understanding Iran just a bit more than you did before. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review for me on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends and family. Signing up for my newsletter that comes out every time I drop episodes gives you extra resources and ideas for how you can deepen your knowledge of the region. And let's go out and make the world a little wiser. Thanks so much for being here.